This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hello and welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I am your host, Emma Benner, and today I'm sharing episode 55 with Mark Tab. I am so excited to share this interview with you all because Mark is actually one of my favorite authors. He has written several books that I have read and I was just so excited to kind of pick his brain about the writing process, what makes him love writing and all of that. Mark has written several of his own books. He talks about that in this interview. And now what he does is he's a co-author or does collaborative writing with other people. So he helps famous people, people with really interesting stories and things like that. He helps them write their stories. Mark has worked with so many incredible people to co-author their books, including YouTube stars Cole and Savannah LeBrant, Olympian Lopez Lamont, this one is one of my favorite books, Super Bowl champion Ben Utek, and so many more. Mark and I get into some of the books that I love that I have read of his, and he shares the process of working with those people and writing those books. That was really fun for me to talk with him about that. One of his big achievements is that he was actually the co-author for the New York Times bestselling book, Mistaken Identity. And I loved hearing about this book. I actually went and grabbed a copy for myself right after this interview and read it because after hearing him talk about this, I just couldn't wait to read this story. In this episode, Mark shares about the collaborative writing process, what he loves about writing and storytelling, how he seeks out these stories, some of his favorite books that he has written, and he also gives us a big list of authors and books that he loves himself. All right, everyone, I'm so excited for you to hear from Mark, and I hope you enjoy hearing more about the writing process and all that Mark does. All right, today on the podcast, I'm so excited to have Mark Tab on the show. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you, Emma. It's great to be with you. Yeah, when I first was asked to help host this podcast, you were actually one of the first people to pop in my mind that I wanted as a guest just because I love your work with all your books so much. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me. I really appreciate that. Yeah. um, So I actually personally don't know a ton about your backstory, and I do want to hear kind of about the journey to becoming the amazing author that you are. Did you like set out to do this work or kind of how did you get to where you are now? It really was a kind of an odd journey. I, my first career, I was a firefighter. Oh, wow. My wife married a fireman. Uh, I was 20 years old. She was 18 when we got married. And that's what I thought I would do the rest of my life. Uh, A year later, I felt moving in my spirit from God to changed careers. I went back to school to become a pastor. So that's what I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life. And so I was back, went to school for a few years, 
ended up at a church in a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere, California, in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, about an hour north of Bakersfield, an hour and a half south of Fresno. <clears throat> tiny town, tiny church, and that's where the bug to start writing really bit and bit hard. And I started off writing um, a little newspaper column for our a paper in a town of 1,500 people. The idea was to do something to kind of let people know something new is going on at this church. That lasted one week, and then I just started writing about uh, having all daughters and the adventures and things that were going on inside our home and just more observational things. And then um, in this little bitty town, we had a, a woman I got to know who became part of our church fellowship. And she actually was a published author. She writes uh, Western novels and you know crime drama, that sort of thing. But she's also teaches courses for Writer's Digest magazine. And she became my mentor. And so we were there in, Cal I was there in California for five years. Uh, my family and I, we moved to, um, to Kentucky briefly to go back to school. I thought it was for one thing, but really I was there. I uh, had another uh, influential person in my life, a man named Robert Don Hughes, who taught a class on, we called it the Ministry of Writing, but really it was on the business side of, of the publishing process. And... While taking that course, I knew what I want to do for the rest of my life is to write. And I think it was eight years later is when I, um, I quit my day job and started writing full time. And it was right, I think about a year into that, I had just finished a book for a publisher and it was an editor I got to know through some writers conferences. And I had just turned in a manuscript and we're both big baseball fans. We had uh, skipped sessions for this um, writer's conference to watch baseball. And he said something about, um, he was upset in a kind of funny way because he's like, oh man, I'm going to have to root for the Yankees this year. And I'm a huge Yankees fan. And so I asked him why. And he said, well, one of their players is going to write a book for us. And I said, how did you get Andy Pettit? And he's going to need some help, right? I don't know why. I figured out it was Andy Pettit. I knew he was a believer and I knew that um, this publishing company, thats it was a Christian publishing house. But to my surprise, my friend, Gary Tereshita, who was the editor, he said, how would you know it was Andy Pettit? And yes, he's going to need some help. And that's when I started doing collaborative writing. And that's really when I got to explore other people's stories. And I discover I love this because of the, the wide variety of people that I've been able to get to know um, and to be able to tell their stories. I mean, it's just it's been amazing. And it's just been such a fun run that I've been able to take with this. So during those first, those eight years, you talked about you started writing, but you were still working your day job. Were you, you were doing your own stories? You weren't be, doing um, co-authored books? You were kind of just writing your own? Okay. Right. I did four books. My first book was one where uh, it was rejected 27 times, which was how many publishers I sent it to. I collected, and this was... 28 years ago when that started. Wow, it was a long time ago. It was a little different. I actually had to send letters in the mail with a self-addressed stamped envelope. And I got back rejection letters and I collected those. I'd sent out book proposals. So I sent out all these big packages with sample chapters and everything for the book I wanted to write. 
And when I got the first rejection letter, I was kind of like, oh, you know, it was a typical young guy. I threw the letter away and, and then it hit me. Why did I throw that away? And I started saving those because it had editors' names on them that I couldn't find any other way. And then we moved, that, we started that process, lived in California. We moved, uh, moved east. And during class one day on, with Robert Don Hughes, he was talking about the journey of his first book and how many times it had been turned down. And he said, every great book starts with a question. So I took my original idea and started rethinking it. And I was sitting at a bus stop on my way to work. I was working part-time, going to school, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I outlined what became my first book. And then I did a query letter. I sent it to all these people who had rejected it. And one of them published it. Now, in between, on my original idea that I sent out that was rejected by 27 different publishers, I had one publisher, at Tom, it was Thomas Nelson Publishers, I had an acquisitions editor call me and tell me he really liked my writing and he really liked the idea. Now, they ended up rejecting the book, but just that little bit was enough to give me the, the motivation to just keep trying. Because I kept thinking to myself, you know, what have I got to lose? The worst they can say is we don't want to publish it, so I'm just going to keep firing away and keep trying. And eventually, um, Moody Press published my first book. They said it was the first unsolicited manuscript they had published in five years. And then that just that led to three more books with them. And then I went to a writer's conference and started that other process. 27 rejections. Wow. Yeah. And now you have, what, more books than that number of rejections yes. published? Yes. Yes. It, it is. It's just, it's crazy to think about. It really is. Yeah. What made you keep going after even 10 of those rejections? Were you really confident in your work or was it just something that you really wanted to do? It was something I really wanted to do, but then also that phone call from Thomas Nelson Publishers, because it's very unusual, I've learned, for an acquisitions editor to make a call like that to somebody, you know, that sends in an unsolicited um book idea because they get, they're flooded with unsolicited ideas. Publishers are with unsolicited manuscripts and query letters and book proposals. And that phone call just really changed everything because I was a pastor at the time and I was in the middle of premarital counseling with a couple that I was going to marry. And so my phone rang and I wouldn't have taken it, but my wife had come over and told me uh, somebody had just called the house. They're calling the church. I had to take that call. So in the middle of the premarital counseling, I take the call, have this conversation. I can't even remember the editor's name, but he told me how much he liked that idea. And I was just sitting there and I was almost shaking with excitement. And when I got off the phone, I just looked at the couple and said, you'll be fine. I'll see you. I got to go. <laughs> and, you know, but I think without that bit of encouragement, it would have been easy to give up. Uh, but also I had my, my mentor, uh, Marilyn Meredith is her name, in California, and she was one who had really encouraged me to keep going. Uh, she was brutal whenever my work, I'd, I would give her stuff to look at as I was first starting this process. And she was brutal. If it was bad, she told me, this stinks, you need to rework it. And if it was good, she would tell me, keep going with this. So I think that combination of the encouragement of my mentor, but also having some affirmation, even though they ultimately rejected it, at the time, Thomas Nelson was the largest Christian publishing house in the world. And... For them to be interested made me go, okay, maybe I can do this. So are you still writing your own books now, or do you mainly do the co-authoring? 
I primarily do co-authoring. Um, over the last 14 years, that's pretty much all I have done. Part of that is it's twofold. One, I ran out of my own ideas. Mm. And, <laughs> but, and I also found I really love doing the co-authoring. But I have had a couple of ideas and of a completely different direction um, for middle grade readers, fiction, and we just sent one out. I guess it's, uh, it's been two years ago now. Found a new agent. It got rejected. I don't know how many times. Everybody turned it down. We sent it out twice and got rejected all those times. Uh, then I got very, very busy, but I'm in a little bit of a break right now. So I'm taking some time. I had 19 months without a break. So I've been off for about two and a half weeks. And probably the first of next week, I'm going to start working on that idea again because I'm not going to give up. You know, I just, the worst they can say is no. So I'm going to start reworking that and send it out again, see what happens. Well, good luck. I'll be looking out for that one and following that journey. With the co-authoring, I'm really, I'm just really interested in that process because my roommate, I read The Convicted back in January and my roommates would be laughing hearing that I'm interviewing you because it was something that when I finished, I think I talked about that book for like two more months and just like that. It was just so incredible of a story. And I just, isn't it so many turns and I couldn't believe just the forgiveness. Um, I guess you can, you can share kind of that story because I think that one's really powerful, not only endlessly, but especially right now. Right. Convicted. uh, It's one of my, it's one of my favorites I've done. It's a story for those who haven't read it. A, uh, a man, Jamel McGee, was walking out of a convenience store in Benton Harbor, Michigan. man came up to him and said, where's, this, where's the dope? Jamel said, I don't know what you're talking about. The man says, yeah, where's the dope? I don't know what you're talking about. The man who was asking for the dope was a policeman, uh, Andrew Collins. Jamel didn't have any dope for sale. He was in a store buying milk for his infant child. And Andrew found dope in a car that um, somebody had given Jamel a ride. The guy who had given him a ride what, did have possession of crack cocaine. Jamel knew nothing about it. Andrew Collins was a policeman. He lied and ended up getting Jamel convicted. Jamel fought it the whole way because he was an innocent man and received 10 years in prison. Um, that wasn't the only person Andrew Collins did this to. He did it to many, and eventually he got caught. And he ended up going, standing before the exact same judge as Jamel McGee, got a much lighter sentence. Uh, fast forward, and this is actually where the book begins. When Jamel goes to prison, all he can think about is he's just seething with anger. He wants revenge on this cop who destroyed his life. And he decided if he ever saw him, he was going to exact his revenge. Well, God started working in his heart. And started convicting him of where he was because the anger and the hatred was eating up inside. And he finally, he just had to let it go and released it to God and said, all right, God, I forgive this guy. And then Jamel, shortly after that, when Andrew is arrested, all of his old cases were thrown out. Jamel's let out of prison because Andrew Collins had lied and he was falsely, Jamel was falsely convicted. Well, then this where the book begins it's when Jamel sees Andrew for the very first time in a park, in a festival that's going on in Benton Harbor, and where Jamel walks up, shakes Andrew Collins' hand, and has that battle going on inside because he wants to exact his revenge, but he has to turn loose, and he does. And 
the two men then end up building a relationship with one another where they truly are best friends. I spent a lot of time with the two of them and I, to see them together, they truly are brothers. And it's just amazing to see the power of forgiveness. And, you know, really that's the only hope we have as a nation and, and as individuals is to release, turn loose of the hatred that we have and just to go forward with, with forgiveness and the freedom that brings. But that book was just, when I saw the story, uh, an agent, a man named Wes Yoder, approached me and said, hey, Mark, I've got another story I want you to tell. And Wes was the one, he, had, he brought me another story called Mistaken Identity that was a number one New York Times bestseller that really opened up the door for me to be able to tell so many more great stories. So Wes sent me a link where, where CBS had done a brief piece on these two men. And I was like, I'm in. I've got to do this book because I saw it not just as a great story, but as a very, very important book. And I just, I, I tell you, it's one of my favorites. I'm so glad, Emma, that you said you couldn't stop talking about it because that's how I, that's how I was as I was writing it. I, oh, my goodness. I was just blown away by their story, by the two men and what all happened with them. It was, it was incredible. It was. I, I mean, not only was the way you wrote it and especially, yeah, how you mentioned you started it with the meeting of them after both of them had been in prison and mm -hmm. um, just seeing both sides of it. I mean, I couldn't believe the forgiveness that Jamal had yeah. because it was like, I don't know if I could do that if I was wrongly accused and put in prison for 10 years. Yeah. I don't know if I had that strength. And then, Me either. you know, they both end, yeah, they were, end up working together and they now speak together and are just world changers now. So it was really yeah. such a powerful story. And I just encourage, it really is. encourage everyone to listen, especially now to see the inequality in the justice system. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to hear about that whole process of working with people when you're um, helping them write their stories, what does it look like? Are they putting pen to paper at all? Are they, um, are they writing any part of the story? Is it different? Like what percent of the story are you writing or are they kind of just, are you spending a year, two years kind of living with them or how does that whole thing process work? Well, it varies from book to book. Uh, some people, so with everybody, I start off just immersing myself in the story, spending as much time as I can with them on the phone or in person. I used to travel and spend time face-to-face -face with people. It's gotten any more where I do everything um, via FaceTime. And, you know, basically I've been doing the Zoom life for a lot longer than everybody else. <laughs> That's how I do my work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'll just spend hours and hours with people and listen to their story and figure out how to tell it. And I will, um, you know, go through each part in great detail and Essentially, because so many of the people I work with, the story we're telling is something that's hor horrible that they've gone through. And I think it, I worked with Alec Baldwin on his book about his divorce from Kim Basinger and his struggle to stay connected to his daughter, Ireland, which the two of them now have an incredible relationship. And Alec, you know, is remarried and has just a great wife and family and just, you know, just so happy for where he is. But I remember Alec told me when we worked together, uh, he was single. He really longed to have, you know, the closeness of the family. I mean, what he has now is what he, I mean, it really is uh, his greatest desire has come true. But uh, he told me, he said, Mark, what you do is you take people back to the worst part of their life and make them describe it to you in great detail. And I said, I'm sorry, Alec. And he goes, no, it's been good for me to do that. 
some of the people I work with, it's been very therapeutic for them to kind of relive that experience and talk it through and just see how, you know, how that worst chapter of their life was not the last chapter of their life. So like with somebody like with Alec, we, I can't even tell you how many, how many hours we spent together, but I would write a chapter and I'd send it to him. And, and so what many people will do is they'll make some changes. Uh, they'll make some additions. Like when I worked with um, Ainsley Earhart from Fox News, and isn't that a contrast? Alec Baldwin, Ainsley Earhart, you would think opposite ends of the spectrum. Right. And both are incredible people. Uh, I just think the world of both of them, they're just such kind, genuine people. Uh, but like what Ainsley would do, she would add, what I would write would just spark her her memory. So she would add and add and add, and I would go through and then edit that together. What Alec did is he completely rewrote everything, which was fine. And then we went back through all that together, and that's what he wanted. Uh, but I've had some people, like I did a book with a man, uh, John McLean, who is a um, Paralympian from Australia. He was the uh, first wheelchair athlete to finish the Ironman triathlon. He did that three times. Uh, he was the first wheelchair athlete to swim the English Channel, and then now he's walking again. Incredible story. Yeah. But when I would send chapters to John, he would change very little, but... I think it was with John was the first time I started dreaming as the person with whom I was working. So I started having dreams that I was in a wheelchair, that my oh, legs didn't work. Yeah. It freaked me out. <laughs> it really did. And then when I worked with a man named Kenneth Bay, who spent a, uh, two years in a North Korean prison, those were some freaky dreams as well. Uh, I had when I was working on that, is just immersing myself in it. And I remember when I started working with Ainsley, uh, I told her how I'd started dreaming as the people that I worked with. I did not dream I was a blonde uh, news tanker. So that was, that was good. But it's really, it's that the process is just so immersing myself in the story so I can see what's going on. So I, I feel it, hear it, think it, and, um, and then write that. Uh, I did a book with a family of a man named Ed Thomas, who was a football coach in Iowa, high school coach, had four players from a small high school in the NFL, He's just—it was an incredible story. Because one of his, one of his former players actually took his life, took Ed's life, mm. and but bef- a year before that happened, there was a uh, tornado that hit their town. And as I wrote about the tornado, I'd interviewed—I can't say—a ton of people in the town. And one of Ed's closest friends, his feedback on that chapter was, uh, he asked if I had actually been there during the tornado because that's how it seemed just wow. from trying to immerse myself in it. Yeah. But I grew up in Tornado Alley, so I'd had some experience. But, so that's what I try to do is immerse myself. And then when I work, as I work with people, I will then write a chapter for them, send it off to them. And, you know, a dialogue goes back and forth as we get it exactly the way they want it. And it's, um, you know, very much is a collaborative process. And every person, you know, is unique of just figuring out what's going to work with them. Like I, I just finished a book with, uh, with Ben Higgins, who is, um, he was The Bachelor on tw- season 20 of The Bachelor. He's also from Indiana, which is where I live. Uh, great guy. Working with Ben was was tremendous. And this book comes out in February. And it's a book about connections, connecting with people. But we worked on that um, for six months and spent a lot of time on the phone, and just going back and forth, working together, figuring out exactly how we wanted to craft the chapter. So it really, it's not like I go and just do somebody's homework for them. 
it truly is a collaborative process of the two of us together because you know people there are people that have a great message or a great story to tell but they're not writers right. and i am a writer and i ran out of things to say <laughs> you know I, and i love to tell stories and i and i try to be very curious i just want to i just want to learn i want to find out more and more about different situations people's experiences and so that's just drives me to just keep pressing for more details from them. And, and it really has, I tell you, it's been life changing for me because I'm not the same after I finished working with people. Uh, one example of that, <clears throat> I did a book with Dr. Bennett Amalu, who uh, a book called Truth Doesn't Have a Side. And Dr. Amalu was, uh, the movie Concussion was about him. Dr. Amalu was the man who discovered CTE, which was the brain disease of football players. Now, I grew up in Oklahoma where football is a religion. I went to five Super Bowls in a row. Um, I got to attend uh, because of people contacts I have with books I had done. Huge football fan. I have not watched football since I worked with Dr. Amalu. I just I walked away from it because I saw it. I began to see not just the damage that the game did to the brains of, of those playing it, but I really began to see it through – uh, with a different set of eyes as a moral issue, really, that I'm being entertained as people's lives are being forever altered. Because right before I worked with Dr. Amalu, I worked with Ben Utek, who was a tight end for my hometown, Indianapolis Colts. And I was at the Super at both of the Super Bowls that the Indianapolis Colts have played in. I was there. I got to watch that. I watched Ben play in one of those Super Bowls. And I got to see firsthand what playing football has done to him as a young man. And even that wasn't enough to throw me over the edge, but then working with Dr. Amalu, it really did. So, you know, it's, it, it becomes a life-changing experience for me as a collaborative writer. Yeah, you're really immersed in your books. I mean, I can personally say I'm the same way with football. I actually um, have just never been a fan. But yeah, I can say, honestly, you... Reading your books, especially the Lopez, LeMong's uh, book, and then Convicted, mm -hmm. it really did feel like even I felt like I was kind of in their shoes. And it was one of those books that really just draws you in and makes you feel like you're kind of experiencing what they mm -hmm. are and just a really bright mental image of everything they're experiencing. So you do a really, really good job with painting the full picture and sharing the story as if, as if the readers are right there with them. Thank you, Emma. That gives me chills. That's because that's my goal is I want to take the reader and set them right there with the person so that whatever that person experiences, the reader sees. And really, that came out of when I did the book, Mistaken Identity, which was about a, um, an accident 10 years ago with students from Taylor University. Um, five people were killed, uh, one staff member from the college, four students, and then another student was in a coma. And they had switched the identities of one of the students who'd passed away with the one who'd survived so that the, and the families didn't know for five weeks. There was a family that was taking care of what they thought was their daughter and it was somebody else for five weeks. Wow. And that was when I started working on that. I had, and it was early in my career, I had to make a decision. Okay, how do I want to tell this? Do I want to? have, you know, where you read this and you find out everything there is to know. Do you hear of what the paramedics thought? Do you, you know, all the doctors, nurses and everything. And then I, I was like, no, this is the, 
this is the story of two families. So I want to tell the story through their eyes. So there might be other things, you know, maybe there may be people that I had people who said, Oh, I knew that, you know, this wasn't Laura, that it was, you know, they'd made a mistake, uh, that the identities were switched, but the families didn't know that. So I didn't want to have that person's input come into the book. I wanted the reader to experience what happened in the exact same way the families did. And I think that that was the most effective way to tell that story. And I think that really is the most effective way to tell all the stories to, to immerse you in it and have you experience it as those who are telling it did. Are all these people coming to you, pitching to you the ideas for the stories and saying they have a story that they want to tell? Or is it, um, are you hearing about stories and, and seeking out um, specific people that you want to write with? Most, almost the vast majority of the stories that I do, they come through my agent or through publishing houses will have somebody that they need a writer to work with them and they know the kind of books that I do. That's where we are now. Now, early on, you know, I was trying to have to get, trying to get my name out there. So like with Andy Pettit was who I did my very first collaborative book with, I spoke up and said, Hey, I want to do this with him. Uh, and then Gary Tarasuta, who was the editor on that book, brought a couple other projects to me, uh, including one with Stephen Baldwin. And that turned into the book with Alec. Um, that book came from just Alec and I, I went to the Super Bowl with him and as the first time I'd met him and, you know, that turned into doing the book. But anymore, it's, it all comes through, um, through some regular channels. Now I get contacted all of the time from people and I've, there's been a few of those that I've chased and uh, worked with. But what I found is I have a nose for really good stories, but I don't have a nose for publishable stories, it seems. Now, the one exception to that was I did a book, the book I did with Ben Utech, who played for the Colts. I read an interview that he did, and I contacted him and said, I'd love to work to, with you. Couldn't get hold of him. So I contacted an agent that I knew in New York, showed him the story, and he made everything happen. But it's, I mean, the world of publishing, it's hard to get into. And it's, I mean, I just stand back and I'm really amazed that I get to be a part of this. Yeah. What is the length of process for each book? Like how long are you writing each book with kind of like how many hours per week would you say you're putting in? Well, it varies by, from, from book to book. I would say on average, I spend four to five months working on the book. And that will be, I mean, it's my full-time job. So I just finished a book with uh, a, a couple, uh, the Edwards family on YouTube, Kayla and Kyra Edwards. And the last couple of weeks of working on that, I was probably working 60 hours a week, I would say, maybe more. But usually, you know, I do it rather than hours, I do it by words per day. And, you know, or like I try to get a chapter done per day. That's a pretty good pace. But then I also have days where it's, I'm just interviewing them and recording that and working on that or, or outlining chapters, or I'll spend a lot of time going back and editing because you cannot, you know, the first draft, can't edit as you write. So I'll go back and do rewriting and all of that. But there are some books like the book that I did uh, about the football coach in Iowa. It's called The Sacred Acre. That book was one of the hardest ones that I've written. And the first chapter in that book, I wrote 17 times, started over 17 times. Oh my and on goodness. the 17th time, I was like, this is what I've been looking for. And then I can move on to chapter two. It was excruciating. It was horrible. <laughs> What does it feel like when you finish a book? Is it a relief? Is it sad? Is it excited? What does it feel like? Well, the last one I finished, 
So it was the end of 19 months, really busy, where I did three and a half books, a couple book proposals. And as I made the final changes on the manuscript, I had Coldplay playing in the background and a song, I think it's The Scientist, where the, the chorus says, no one said it was easy or something like that. And as I made those final changes, I just, I yelled and threw my arms up in the air. I was like, yes. But usually what it really feels like is um, if you had finals week for an entire semester, at the end of the semester, how your brain would feel, that's how my brain feels. I'm just like, ha. So the the last couple weeks, all I've done is kayaked, ridden my bike, and fished. (laughs) So. I've ridden a lot of miles on my bike. Yeah. Do you get, like, do you read a a lot yourself or do you kind of get sick of words? No, no. I I read more when I have a deadline and I read nonstop. When when I'm working on a book, I'm constantly reading. Oh, funny. And then, yeah. And then I had a a gap. I guess it was the end of 2018. I had three months off because I just finished two or three books and I had another one that they were you know, the details of the contract are being worked out. So I had some time off and all I did during that time was read. And I read um, a lot of, like I read a, a lot of, um, read H.G. Wells, Mark Twain, um, Steinbeck. I love Steinbeck. Um, I read a lot of Hemingway because I, first couple of books I read by Ernest Hemingway, I didn't like, like I read The Sun Also Rises and I'm reading it and I'm like, I don't like any of these people, but I had to keep reading and I was like, I, man, I just, I don't care for these people. I don't, you know, and then the last page, the last paragraph, Hemingway made me feel something I still cannot describe. And I was like, whoa, that's why I was reading this book. So I, I spent three months just reading authors to help try to make myself a better writer. I wanted to read the best I could. And some of those guys, I mean, just um, uh, Steinbeck, there's just, I read his book, Travels with Charlie in Search of America. What an incredible book that is. I mean, it's just not many people. It's not one of his more, you know, best known works. But I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Is he an author that you kind of try to emulate? Or are there no. authors you are inspired by and kind of want your work to be similar to? So in the beginning, as I was learning the craft, the two authors that had the greatest impact on me, one of them... Uh, was Charles Colson. And Chuck Colson, his book, Loving God, was the first time I saw the power of story in nonfiction. And it was it had a great impact on me. Uh, in fact, when I started, I think just a few months after I quit my day job, I got to actually sit down and interview Colson for uh, an organization I was working with. And that was just a highlight. Um, another writer who had a huge impact on me was the humor writer, Dave Barry. I learned more about the craft of writing from reading him uh, because humor is very difficult to write. And in the beginning, when I was just writing newspaper columns. I tried to do, you know, tried to be funny. But he is just a master at the craft of writing. Uh, Stephen King is also, and all the people are like, ah, oh, you know, this stuff is all gory or whatever. Um, the first page and a half of a Stephen King novel is, it blows me away of how he can pull somebody into a story and just make you go, Wow, I've got to keep reading. Uh, Laura Hildebrand's book, Unbroken, the first few pages of that book. I, uh, I used to have a, up until I got super busy here over the last year, I had a writer's group that I'd meet with on a regular basis. And I would read to them 
uh, like I read to them the first few pages of the book Unbroken and stopped. And one of the first, one guy just looked back and he goes, why did you stop? I got to keep going. Uh, but I would say in the beginning, Dave Barry and uh, Chuck Colson were that they were very, very influential in me on the just the craft of writing. And then I try to read a little bit of everybody. I read a lot of history. Um, David McCullough, I love him. He's, he's a great storyteller. Stephen Ambrose, before I, well, when I was first starting out writing, I read his book about the Lewis and Clark expedition and it made me feel like I was there. And that was something that stuck with me. It was like, that's what I want to do as I'm writing. But I want the reader to feel that kind of immersive experience. So he had an impact. But, you know, the, the writer's mantra is to read a lot and write a lot. And so you constantly, anybody who wants to write, you need to constantly read and read and read and read and read. Read a variety of writers, read a variety of genres, just to continue to make yourself sharper. And just to be able to, um, I don't know, it, reading for me fills up my tank so I can write more. Interesting. Yeah, I'm a huge reader. And then I've always had a dream of writing a book one day and um, or maybe several. But yeah, that's my dream. But it all it is intimidating. I mean, you talk about just the intense process of mm -hmm. writing, how intense it is for so many months. And it is kind of intimidating mm -hmm. to put that all together. And then I mean, even you have had all these rejections and all that whole process is just kind of intimidating. It is. But you know, I don't want to get to the end of my life and say, wow, I wish I had tried to do that. Mm -hmm. I wish I had tried. And my stepfather, he was the one who really inspired me to, to risk failure. He was the one who taught me that hearing the word no, big deal, you know, that it's not fatal. Rejection is not fatal. And, you know, being rejected as a writer, like I said, I've met this book that I think is pretty funny um, that I've written about a dog in a presidential campaign. My agent loved it, and you know, but we kept getting turned down. We had some couple close calls, though. I'm ready to, to rework it, and I'm hoping that maybe the atmosphere in the country will change a little bit over the next year or so where people can kind of relax a bit and we can laugh at something like a presidential election again. <laughs> um, you know, I, I read the book, The Kid Who Ran for President, and I thought that was genius. It was such a good book. And, you know, but stuff like that, people today are like, no, we got to take it so serious. Ah, let's not take ourselves so serious. Uh, but, you know, it's been turned down. I don't care. I'm going to keep trying. Yeah. How many of those books do you have stored up of how many, like how many do you have that haven't been released to the public? So the second book that I wrote was never published, but I've gone back over the years and pulled out parts of it. And they appear, you know, so that book appears in several of my other of my own books. Um, I have, let me see, I did, let me see, one. Uh, I, I wrote a, a collaborative book with a woman uh, that's part of the Wrigley family. And then she decided not to release the book just because of the headache of possible lawsuits. Uh, but then recently, so I wrote, uh, I've written two middle grade books the one about the dog in a presidential campaign. And then uh, right before my really busy time started, I wrote a zombie book about a 12-year-old kid that gets caught in a zombie apocalypse, and it's kind of ridiculous, and I think it's funny. And that's one that I'm going to rework here soon and start sending it out. How much backlash or negative 
reactions to books do you get or do you just completely ignore it and not read the reviews and things like that or kind of what is that like? Well, that's that's a great question. Um, I do read reviews and sometimes they, especially early on, would make me angry if they were bad. Um, but usually the reviews are really good and I'll look at the reviews. Like the book that I did with Ainsley Earhart, uh, there were some negative reviews and I would read them and the person had never read the book. Mm. I was like, like this matters. This doesn't matter. But I want to listen to, I do listen to criticism from, you know, from some different sources where I just, I want to always try to keep myself sharp. It's very easy just to get complacent with whatever you're doing. If you, if you do one thing long enough and you're, are, you know, moderately successful at it, it's very easy just to sort of coast. And I never want to coast. And I had a, uh, an editor, and this was on one of my own books, uh, that we'd worked with on several. And as she sent her edits to me, there was one chapter she flagged. She said, I think you were just lazy here. I was like, oh, no. And she was right. But, yeah, I, I read on Amazon. I'll go through and I'll read readers' reviews. And, you know, some of them can touch a nerve. But, you know, that's really rare. It really is. So writing a book, I mean, honestly, especially when it's your own, uh, it's like walking into a very public place and having your pants fall down. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just feel exposed. Mm -hmm. And the hardest thing for me early on was when I knew I wanted to write. I felt like this was my calling. I was 30 years old and I felt like this is what I'm going to do. But when I would tell people and I told very few people, I just felt kind of silly, you know, like a little boy. What do you want to be when you grow up? I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be a, you know. I'm going to be a brain surgeon. I'm going to be a writer. You know, I kind of felt that same, very unrealistic. But then, you know, you just start doing it and you get over the uh, that sense of being hyper aware and, you know, of, of critics and you just got to go forward and do your own thing. That terrifies me too. I'm such a sensitive person. <laughs> so reading reviews, uh, negative reviews would be just like, oh, it would kill me for days, I think. And, and it can be, you know... I've worked with a couple, a couple of books with YouTube personalities, uh, Colin Sav, which you've read, and then the one I just finished uh, with uh, Kaylin and Kyra Edwards. And that was one of the things that they talked about they had to get over with the negative comments. You know, because like the old statement, you know, haters going to hate. There's going to mm -hmm. be that negative. But the thing is, you know, so you have to push it out. And also there were times where people, I think it was, I can't remember, it was an early book where somebody, you know, the way they criticized it was one where I just kind of looked at it and was like, you know, well, get your own book contract and write your own and see if you're going to do better. The Have person you it. were writing with was criticizing? No, no. No, it was a, a review. It was oh, a reader review. Yeah. And I just thought, well, you know, try it yourself. See how it goes for you. Yeah, right. That's kind of like when when people are on the sidelines of a sports game and they're mm -hmm. shouting like, oh, they did this wrong. And it was, how did they not make that shot or whatever? And it's like, yeah. you're not in there. You have no idea what it's like. You have a completely different angle and all of yeah. that. So it's probably similar to how you feel. It like is. You haven't been in the process. It probably might seem easier to write better, but it's not, right? Right, right. You know, and I, I'm well aware of my own limitations. I read great writers. I don't ever claim to be in that category at all. 
you know, I, and every, every writer, I mean, I, I like to read about the background of writers. Um, Michael Crichton, that was another one. I, Michael Crichton's work, I just devoured. Uh, when my wife went back to school uh, 20, over 20 years ago, I had a lot of extra time I had whenever she was just studying. So I just, I started reading every Michael Crichton novel there was. And I read his background and, you know, and people criticized him. And it's like, I think he's great. You know, so you just got to, as I read about different writers, they, every writer has to overcome that same barrier of, am I going to listen to the voices of critics? And, and just that, just that queasiness, that feeling of, you know, man, I'm putting this out there. I expect people to read it and they want, you know, I want it to be good. It's, it's like cooking a big meal for people you don't know. And just like, I don't know how they're going to take this, but yeah, there's just a, for me, if I don't write, I would just explode. It's, that's my happy place. Even on the times where I have to, when I rewrite a chapter 17 times at the end, it feels so good to finally get it right that all the frustration is worth it. And there's, I mean, there's days that are so frustrating. Uh, there's days my wife will come home and all the laundry's done, and the house is clean, and she'll go, huh, tough day of writing, right? I said, yes, because i got to do something to get that frustration out. Um, but, you know, when it clicks, when it comes together, it just feels so good. Mm-hmm. For sure. I'm just so, I'm also so interested in hearing from authors and that's another reason that I contacted you. I just kind of want to hear the background story from everyone and what makes them click and Mm -hmm. the process of it. I'm really interested in the process of writing those books and um, just kind of what keeps them going and what, what Mm -hmm. interests them about what they're specifically doing. Mm -hmm. And what is that for you? Like what, what is it about telling other people's stories specifically that gets you fired up? When they have a message, when they have something, you know, that I know this is going to help people, this is going to change people. But then also, I love a great story. And to be able to get immersed in it and to have the privilege of telling it, that gets me, that gets me excited. Do you have to do the marketing for your books no. or is that more of your publishers and the things? Well, because... On the collaborative books, when we finish all of the, you know, there's a pro- editorial process with the publisher. And when that's done, I always tell the people I'm working with, so now it's on you. All the marketing's on you. And so it's, you know, the publisher and, and them working together. Now, on my own individual books, um, there's a marketing department with the publisher. And like on one of them, one of my books was nominated for an award. It was my fourth book fifth book. It was originally called Out of the Whirlwind, and then um, it went out of print with the original publisher, and then it was republished under the name How Can a Good God Let Bad Things Happen? Uh, but when it was nominated for an award, I hired a publicist. The publisher and I split the cost and did a bunch of radio interviews and things like that. It still didn't sell very many copies, but I found the best way to have, if you want to sell a lot of books, is... Um, just having a platform or having a great story that's going to catch national attention. And I, I don't know, you know, I've had some books where I thought they were just going to sell like crazy and uh, they did not. And I've had others where I thought, yeah, maybe this will do okay. And it's just gone gangbusters. So it's, it's hard to tell, but no, that I'm terrible at marketing. (laughs) So that goes to other people. You stick with the writing, what you're good at. I do. Yep. Yes. Another podcast in the network, the All Have Another podcast, um, interviews runners, and 
it's hosted by Lindsay Hine, and she just actually interviewed Lopez Lamong. And we, oh. like I mentioned, we um, we read that book in the book club for that podcast, and that's kind of how I got really interested in it. And I'm a big runner myself, so I've followed Lopez's career for a long time, but I didn't really know his backstory, you know, as much as I should have. So that book was. Mm-hmm. Wow. It was so good. And then him getting interviewed with Lindsay, he's just such a fun character and so positive. And I mean, just having that story and yeah, being in a refugee camp for 10 years and losing your childhood and uh, losing your family and just kind of faith in humanity and all of that. And to Mm -hmm. be able to come out and just his story of coming to the United States in a family taking him in and then all he's accomplished in running becoming yeah. uh, he's a two-time Olympian. And mm-hmm. I mean, he just had an incredible race breaking 13 in the 5k and he's just on fire with running right now, still wow. at his age. So yeah. I really want to hear about working with Lopez because he had to have been just so much fun to work with. And I want to, I really want to hear about that process. He really was. Um, and the timing of working with Lopez was interesting because my wife and I, our two youngest daughters are adopted from Ethiopia, which was a two year process that looked like it wasn't going to happen. So we finally, we got to, we had to make two trips for the adoption. So we went to Ethiopia for our first trip and our adoption was done um, in Ethiopia. Then we had to have the U S stuff that had to be worked out, which took a lot longer. So we went over to Ethiopia in the middle of November of um, 2011, we got home the week of Thanksgiving, had Thanksgiving, and the next week I flew to Flagstaff to spend a week with Lopez. And so he starts he starts asking me questions. I tell him about my girls. And so for our first hour of working on that book, all he did was tell me things that he wished he'd known when he came from, uh, from Africa to the U.S., things I needed to know for my daughters. Whenever, and so then at the, toward the end of the process of the book, uh, in, on Super Bowl Sunday, in February 4th or 5th, 2012, is when we actually got to bring our girls home. And the Super Bowl was in Indianapolis, brought our girls home. They were 13 and 15 at the time. And, you know, it's been quite a while since then. It was in 2012. We get home on a Sunday. On Monday, Lopez calls me. And we didn't have a call scheduled. And he said, Mark, I'm not calling to talk to you. I want to meet your daughters. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's what he's like. That's what he's like. And he called them again because, you know, Ethiopia has a lot of distance runners. And uh, he called another time because he had just met uh, a couple of Ethiopian runners. He wanted to talk to them about it. But that's what he was like to work with. He was the most just gentle, uh, conscientious man. He just had, I mean, just so much life to him. I just, I love the man. Uh, that's a book. I, there's been talk of it being a movie. I wish that would happen because that's that's a stand up and cheer story. That's yeah. a great, just unbelievable story from a refugee camp living on his own for 10 years, coming to the U.S. at 16 and becoming an Olympian for the United States. Uh, the photograph in that book of George W. Bush with his arm around Lopez at the 2012 Olympics is one of my favorites. That, I mean, it's just that's just crazy. Or, no, it was a 2008. It was oh, the okay, Beijing yeah. Olympics. I'm sorry. Is Lopez still a part of like your family's life with your kids and role model for them? Or what is that like? 
No. Um, and we've talked just a, you know, a few times since the book was over. But for most of the people that I work with, once the book is over, we get back into our regular lives and we'll have some contact, but not we don't stay in you know close contact. There have been a couple of exceptions to that rule. But for the most part, we kind of, you know, the thing we had in common was working on this book. And it's kind of funny, too, Emma, because with being a collaborative writer, we spend, you know, I'll spend hours upon hours upon hours with somebody, but I hardly talk. Mm. It's hard to believe how much mm-hmm. I've talked in this interview because <laughs> I like to talk. Yeah. But I just, I just listen. And what I found is when somebody is a, an active listener, you know, you really connect with them. People who actively listen to you become, they become very meaningful in your life. And so it's, we make a great connection, but once there's not a reason to stay in contact, uh, often we don't. Now there, like I said, there have been some exceptions. There are people that I've worked with that, um, you know, I talked to, uh, to the stay and have done things with, but that's, doesn't always happen. Who is your dream person to write for? Like what's a story you just dream of getting to work with? Wow. Um, so I just, and that varies from week to week when I see a great story. So I cannot remember her name. There's a woman, an athlete in the WNBA who took a leave of absence for the, from the WNBA to work to win the freedom of a man who'd been wrongfully convicted in Missouri. And he was just laying out of prison. I would love to write that book. That's the kind of story I love to write. But as far as, um, I don't know, my family's always throwing out things. You know, it's like, yeah, oh, why don't you get a book with them, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> Whoever's famous, you know, like right. uh, some singer or whatever. Like, oh, you should get a book with them. But I, I really just, my the thing I want the, the most is just really good stories. And not all of them are going to be the same. But it's, every once in a while, one will come along like Convicted that I think is just an important book. And those are the ones who are like, okay, I, I want to, I want that one. So if I can get one of those here once in a while, I'm, I'm really happy. And along those lines, um, maybe you, maybe this question is unfair and it's like asking who your favorite kid is, but what is, <laughs> what is your favorite book you've written or maybe a couple of them? Yeah, let me, the favorite I've written that is kind of like, who's your favorite child? <laughs> I um, bet. So I think Lopez Lamong's Running for My Life, that's my wife's favorite of all the ones I've done. And that's pretty high up there on the list for me. Um, let me see. Um, Mistaken Identity, that's one. I cannot read it today to write that book because it dealt with two families dealing with the loss of a child. And when that book, when the event happened, there was this accident with athlete or with, you know, students from Taylor university, my daughter, number two, I have five daughters. Daughter number two was a student at Taylor and was on the track and cross country teams. When we heard that there was an accident involving Taylor students, the first thing we did was try to get hold of her because we didn't know if she was off at a meet or at practice. But that one, I had to kind of pretend everybody, nobody was real as I was writing it, that they were just characters in a story. But, you know, that that book is one of my favorites. 
I think because the families were just so genuine, the Van Dyne and Serac families, I mean, they, they really ministered to me. I mean, there were times where I had trouble holding it together as I was interviewing them and they kind of helped me through that. So that, I, I think that was one of my, my favorites, but uh, my favorites to read, I would say probably would be Lopez and um, I would think convicted is very high. Good yeah. to hear because it's, yeah, some of my favorite books that I've written or not that I've written books that I've read. Now there's one other, the, the, um, not Forgotten, which I did with Kenneth Bay. He's originally from South Korea, moved to the U.S. when he was 16. He's the one who spent two years in a North Korean prison because, um, you know, later on in life. When the book released, he spoke at our church. And so the night before, he spent the evening with my family just telling stories. And I felt like I was with somebody out of the Bible. He was such a humble and incredible man. And, you know, that's my daughters, my two youngest daughters, they'll say, that's our favorite dad. He's the best. He's the best you've ever worked with. Um, that, was a, that was a great book. That was hard to write because there's a story in there involving a dog that he told me about it. You know, so I knew the story was coming. And when I got to that chapter, I was just like, oh, I don't really want to write this. But I did. It was hard. Well, Mark, this has been just a dream. Honestly, you've been a dream guest to hear behind your work, to speak with an author and all of the sorts. And I wish we could talk for a couple more hours. <laughs> it would be so much fun to keep hearing about what you do. Um, but we're at the end of the podcast questions now. So what is the best or most recent book that you've read? The most recent book that I've read was John Perkins, Let Justice Roll Down. Wow. It came out in 76. It was a book where I was like, where, wh how did I miss this? That book is incredible. It really is. So that's the most recent that I've read. And what's your favorite book you've ever read? Now that's asking like, which is my favorite book? <laughs> um, I, have, I have a lot. Um, at one time it was Unbroken, but then uh, Louis Amperini, that the book is about, he did his own uh, called Devil at My Heels. I like it even better. It's so good because he doesn't take himself serious at all. It's it's really good. Um, Loving God is one of my favorites of all time by Charles Coulson. Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton, one of my favorite novels. I've read that book so many times. It's just, it's an incredible book. I don't know if you ever read the book. Mm -mm. Uh, most people have just watch the movie. The book is, I think is amazing. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. I love that book. It is, it's great. Uh, Travel, Travels with Charlie and Surf to America by Steinbeck. You got to read it. It's okay. such, it's such a great book. Uh, Cannery wrote, yeah, I can just, you can go on and on. I love, <laughs> I, can you tell I love books? Yeah, I do too. So I love, I love your passion for it. Yeah. You'll have to just send over a list of like 30 books for everyone to read. Okay. I'll try uh, to put that together. Yeah. Um, who or what is illuminating in your life right now? I've been thinking about this question as you sent it. I don't think I'm really going through a period of inspiration right now as much as a time of just exam self-examination and learning. I think the last several months of what we've gone through as a country in the wake of uh, after George Floyd and, but also with just 
what's come through with COVID, but then also some things that we've gone through as a family has really had me just spending a lot of time just looking at myself and, and examining um, what are areas of weakness in my life that I have, you know, that I've just not noticed the things that I need to address in my own heart, in my own life, that I need to do be better in those areas and need to learn more. So that's really where I've been is in a time of self-examination and reflection. Mm, I love that. I think we, we all need to do that. We all have areas to check ourselves mm-hmm. on and to work on. And yeah. If we all did just a little bit of that every single day, think about how great of a place the world could be. Exactly. Yeah. Lastly, what is your one message to send to the world? The word that came to mind for me was blind spots. And this came from reading John Perkins' book. As in John Perkins, he was a civil rights leader. And as he talked about how he had escaped Mississippi after his brother, who was a World War II vet, was killed by the police in Mississippi for being too loud in the line of a movie theater in 1946. He moved to California and then he ended up going back. Felt like God had called him back to Mississippi. But he talked about how if the white church had stood with the black church during the time of civil rights, how different things would have been. He kept saying, where, where are white believers in this? Where are my fellow believers in this struggle? And it just made me start thinking about, okay, I, you know, where are my blind spots when it comes to, to race? And I, I got to thinking, I was a pastor in California in 92 when Rodney King happened. And I thought, what did I say in response to that? Did I, I probably just, you know, it was very safe, like, let's pray for our country or, or whatever. But I didn't really think I need to take some more proactive steps. I need to step out of my comfort zone. How can I have been so blind to that? And in this, uh, this latest conversation on race, my two youngest daughters have really helped me there. You know, they're originally from Ethiopia and um, they have really helped me to look at what is going on through different eyes than I ever had before. And it's just like, I never even thought about changing how I saw this. And, you know, it's not that I was looking at it through a racist uh, lens, but it was, I found easy ways to just explain away what was going on without having to be very uncomfortable myself. And that was a huge blind spot. So that's where I'm just kind of my message is, let's all realize we all have blind spots and try to open up our eyes to them. And I think that help us to understand one another instead of shouting at one another. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Mark Tab. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the behind the scenes, the writing process, and all about some of the books that he has written just as much as I enjoyed hearing from him. If you want to follow along and learn more about what Mark's doing and a full list of the books that he has written, you can go to his website at marktab.com. That's marktabb.com. And I highly recommend that you check out one of his books. They're all super good and a broad range of topics, so you can probably find one that fits your interests. If you want to follow along with all things that the Illuminate podcast does, you can find us on Twitter at Illuminate underscore pod, on Instagram at the Illuminate podcast, 
And if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate if you left a rating and review on the podcast app that you're using and you shared about it on social media because that's a really great way for new listeners to find the show. Thank you all for being here and listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and have a great rest of your week.